Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you will think about pre-ordering my new book. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Today, my investigation revealing how the recent boom in the fact-check industry can be traced to the same partisan interests. Today, I'm going to talk through the findings of my original investigation that I conducted for Real Clear Investigations. And it's on a topic that I know is near and dear to many of your hearts, because if you're listening to this podcast now, you've probably already noticed that the fact-check trend that really took off in earnest around 2016, primarily to use against President Trump and his supporters, that the fact-check trend has two folds. First, they often aren't fact-checking facts. They are fact-checking other things. They are using fact-checks to dissect and spin facts and opinions and predictions and theories, not fact-checking at all. And second, fact-checks almost always seem to come down on one side, finding ways to twist a particular true fact that they or their interests disagree with into something that they can label as false or partly false or something less than true. And you know, like I do, that these things don't happen by accident. And as I've formally poked around and probed, I have found that, yes, a lot of the same interests are behind fact-checking efforts spearheaded by academic institutions, nonprofits, journalism organizations. And while certainly those on the political right would like to control fact-checks and narratives just as much as those on the political left, it's pretty clear that the right is nowhere near as successful at doing so. That's just a fact, an observation, not an opinion. Since Donald Trump's election, these fact-checkers have gained increased prominence because they've stepped in and done more and more. And pressure is mounted for news organizations and big tech companies, including Google, Facebook, and Twitter, to step in and police everything from political discourse to people's opinions, to ads and feelings, you name it. So what did I find when I really set out to dig into all of this in an analytical way? Well, first of all, many such fact-checking efforts fail at the start because what they really amount to is a circular feedback loop of verification. The fact-checkers themselves tend to be like-minded journalists Or often they are liberal Silicon Valley gatekeepers who rely on partisan news sources and political activists to control narratives on a wide variety of issues and controversies. If the fact checkers are looking at partisan news sources to check the facts and saying that therefore proves something is true or not true, they really haven't done an independent fact check. And this small group of players doing so exerts an oversized influence, I found, using fact checks to try to shape, and even censor information on the public information landscape. You'll recall that Twitter recently sparked controversy by taking the unprecedented step of adding a disapproving fact-checking label to some of President Trump's tweets. And this started on May 26th, when Twitter explained publicly that Trump's post contained what its fact-checkers on Twitter deemed to be, quote, potentially misleading information about voting processes. Well, what had Trump written about? 
he had said that widespread mail-in ballots in the 2020 election would be, quote, substantially fraudulent. Now, of course, what amounts to substantial or substantially fraudulent is in the eye of the beholder, but the U.S., we know, has a long and ongoing history of ballot fraud. So what he said or predicted could happen is something that really isn't radical in terms of historical perspective or the factual basis. Nevertheless, Twitter stepped in and added a label that warned that Trump's claims were, quote, unsubstantiated, and get this, Twitter said, according to CNN, Washington Post, and others. Experts say, Twitter went on, mail-in ballots are very rarely linked to voter fraud. Well, there's so many things wrong with that statement. First, they're relying on CNN, Washington Post, which have all but sworn their enemy status of President Trump. They're not even hiding it, so that's not really an unbiased way to check the fact of something. Secondly, they're basically trying to say something is false that President Trump is saying could happen in the future or would happen in the future, and it hasn't happened yet, so we don't know if it will happen, if it won't happen. To say on the front end that it's false or misleading is really, I think, a stretch and a fact check from a fact check standpoint. And also relying on past behavior because it talked about mail-in ballots are very rarely linked to voter fraud. Let's assume for a moment that's true. Well, what does that have to do with the 2020 dynamic where we have probably an unprecedented campaign against a sitting president? I've never seen anything like it. And the, and the notion that Somebody, whether a foreign entity or partisan enemies, might not step in in a way that has not been done before and try to impact the election or perhaps be guilty of some kind of fraud. The idea that that's unheard of or would never happen because the claim here is that it never happened in the past this way, that doesn't really prove anything about what might, could, or will happen in 2020. So anyway, that's just an example of the types of fact checks we see today that are claiming to know something or to say something's false that they can't possibly know simply because they seem to want to criticize a certain party or position. Moving on to Google, Google, as you know, has gotten criticized for inserting its judgment and opinions between internet users and their search results. I've said this before. I think that we're going to look back on the last two decades as really the golden age of the internet and even Google when we could look for information and have some confidence that we were getting mostly unfiltered information. At least it wasn't being filtered in terms of censorship because there were views and opinions we were not to see. That's all seemed to come to a screeching halt. In February, this is one example, Google announced it was going to fight what it considered disinformation about coronavirus by partnering with the World Health Organization. Google explained that user searches about COVID-19 would be directed to the World Health Organization's online information. One big problem, the World Health Organization itself has been guilty of factual information in multiple instances. I mean, just taking one case, the World Health Organization admitted it had wrongly called the global risk of coronavirus emanating from China moderate at a time when it had actually been very high. And critics say the partnership with WHO by Google is part of a trend by these big tech fact checkers to present these 
often controversial global organizations that have certain interests, as if they are nonpartisan purveyors of objective fact. Me, if I'm searching for something on Google, something on coronavirus, I don't want to be directed to something that people who may know less about something than I do or may have interest at stake that I don't. I don't want to be directed to someplace they want me to see, unless maybe I opt into such a service. But they don't ask. They just do it. Over at Facebook, censorship of accounts and ideas there has included Facebook doing a fact check about a documentary. I've talked about that on another podcast. A documentary about the lab in Wuhan, China. The lab was under investigation as a possible source of the COVID-19 outbreak. Still is, as far as I know. But Facebook claimed the documentary was false. Yet when I did an investigation as to how they arrived at that determination, which itself was not true, Facebook's claim or fact check, well, that revealed that one of the authorities Facebook referenced to discredit the documentary was, guess who, a scientist who worked at the Wuhan lab. And Facebook did not respond to a request for an interview about all of this, actually multiple requests when I asked for one from Mark Zuckerberg or a representative. So who are pulling the strings and calling the shots when all this goes on? Who's behind the faces we see or the people we know about? Fact-checking organizations, they know, if you've talked to people who have worked on these projects, they know that they have an inherent challenge. It's not reasonable to expect that any appointed group of fact-checkers would have true expertise in all of these topics that they're litigating. I mean, if they try to fact-check, for example, a story that I've covered, maybe I've spent months investigating it on a topic that I've been familiar with for years, there are probably very few pre-appointed fact-checkers that could come in on that and and fact-check me in a, in a factual way that they know more. They would have to rely on somebody else telling them something or on their own ideas about a subject when they may not have as much information. But they do this every day. They litigate on topics and ideas that they can't possibly know as much about. As the labels applied to the Trump tweets illustrate, the brand of fact-checking we're talking about today is just not cut and dry. I mean, it would be simple if it was what I used to think of as a fact-check, verifying something did occur on a date or how many things happened. You know, maybe somebody said one thing, was this number correct? But fact checks are increasingly used to litigate matters of opinion or debate, proclaim the truth about facts that are unknown or can't possibly be known at the time. And then this other trick, they commonly provide what they call context for a claim. But what they're doing is taking a factually correct statement and giving it their context and then calling the factually correct statement half true or mostly false. So keeping all of this in mind, I would say the biggest inherent flaw with efforts to fact-check information lie in the qualifications, the bias, and the conflicts of interest among the ranks of the fact-checkers themselves. So let's look at an example that I've talked about in my TEDx talk and when asked about this topic before, and I've written about it in The Smear, but the fact-checking nonprofit first draft. And when that came on the scene around the beginning of the 2016 election cycle, I later looked back to say, well, how did this happen? They were the ones that came forward with a modern, 
use of the term fake news going after, at the time, what they deemed fake news was all conservative. There were no liberal examples that they considered fake news. It was only conservative examples. And when I dug in, I learned that First Draft was started up by Google, funded by Google. And Google, as you may know, is owned by Alphabet. And Alphabet executives employees are a politically active group that rank among the largest political donors to Democrats in the country. And during the 2016 campaign, when Google funded this nonprofit First Draft, Alphabet was led by an ardent Hillary Clinton supporter and campaign volunteer, its executive chairman, Eric Schmidt. And First Draft, with all of these fact checks and organizations, it's done partnerships with academic groups to try to make sure the news is right and that the facts are out there. Well, it's supported not just by Google and Alphabet, but by an array of liberal companies and nonprofits, including the Ford Foundation and George Soros' Open Society Foundations. These, these are people that fund this nonprofit First Draft. And First Draft tends to check to fact-check topics in a vein that's consistent with its major donors' opinions and interests. That's just true. That's just the case. And particularly if you look at controversies that it happens to express special interest in, vaccine safety and climate change, First Draft appears to give little consideration to opposing scientific views and information. They come down on the progressive side of these things and they, they don't seem to give any deference. They act as though the case is closed when it's not, you know, when it's a matter of great debate and scientific debate, but they simply declare one side of the issue. And you look at their funders, that's the position of their funders. In April, First Draft uncritically referred readers to an article perpetuating a false story that President Trump had literally encouraged people to drink bleach. That was a quote. Now, if you actually watched that news conference that they're talking about, President Trump never said anything of the sort. But if you've only watched the news coverage of the news conference, you might well think he actually said that. First Draft actually had an article that it linked to that perpetuated this false story and was uncritically linking to the article. So here's a fact check group that partners with a lot of academic institutions and journalism groups and teaches journalists how to check facts and so on, but look what it's doing, look who's behind it, look what it's promoting. Among the group's original organizers is its digital director, Alastair Reed, according to its website, who has frequently tweeted and retweeted anti-American rhetoric and progressive positions. For its part, though, First Draft um, on its website says, quote, certain projects and initiatives may be guided in part by the specific requirements of our funding partnerships, but, First Draft goes on to say, our donors understand that First Draft retains operational and editorial independence. Our decisions are driven by the organization's mission and values. But I just think that it's clear when you look at the website and the opinions that it has on a lot of so-called facts that the mission and the values are very much in line with one side of the political spectrum, never the other. Now, maybe there's an exception I missed, but I looked pretty hard. Similar issues surround NewsGuard. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's an internet browser tool that you can download or subscribe to. I'm not sure. It's a little confusing when I checked out the website, but it rates 
the trustworthiness of news sources on search engines and social media sites. And it was created in 2018, funded in part by one of the largest PR advertising and data collection firms in the world. It's called Publicus Group. Publicus is also active on the progressive side of major issues and controversies from gender to race and climate. Again, on one side of those issues only, never the other side from what I could tell. NewsGuard states that besides its founders, Stephen Brill and Gordon Krovitz, it says that other investors, the funders, play no role in determining of ratings. In other words, of setting the truthfulness that they determine news organizations have. And I still say you look at what it's done and its findings and it tends to at times not come across as a neutral rating of trustworthiness of news. For example, its analysts have given a green light of trust to openly partisan sources such as the liberal smear group Media Matters for America. And last November, I found out because I was conducting this investigation for Real Clear Investigations, Real Clear Investigations told me that NewsGuard had reached out to them to question Real Clear Investigations' use of anonymous sources to reveal the identity of a controversial intelligence community whistleblower. You remember that one whose allegations helped lead to Trump's impeachment, but most of the media, for their own reasons, protected the name of the so-called whistleblower, even though it was very controversial. His status as a whistleblower was under question. A lot of other information was sort of debatable, but the media at large chose not to reveal his name. I've never seen that deci- a decision like that made by the media as a group about someone claiming to be a whistleblower. But Real Clear Investigations uh, published an article that revealed the identity of this whistleblower, and that was very unpopular among liberally partisan interests. And when NewsGuard appeared to be going after Real Clear Investigations over this topic, Real Clear Investigations asked NewsGuard, well, are you posing similar questions about use of anonymous sources to use of anonymous leaks by other news organizations like the New York Times and Washington Post and CNN and NBC and BuzzFeed? But NewsGuard did not reply to that query. The clearest example I think of conflicts in play regarding fact checks can be found by looking at Facebook's new oversight board. That was a board that was recently created in response to criticism over Facebook's decisions to flag certain content and accounts. Now, according to Facebook, members of the chosen oversight board were picked for their expertise and diversity and, quote, must not have actual or perceived conflicts of interest that could compromise their independent judgment and decision-making. They all have, quote, expertise in or experience in advocating for human rights. Now think about this. So they've picked an oversight board, all of whom seems like the qualifying factor was they had to have advocated for human rights, which in of itself, although everybody, I think in general terms, believes in human rights, that the advocates tend to come down on certain side of what human rights mean or how human rights should be treated in the public forum and what should be said about certain things. These were not experts that were chosen for their neutral stance or their ability to look at 
fair and open information or presentation of information, open access of information, these concerns that a lot of people have about what Facebook is doing. And again, I want to emphasize, Facebook claimed their oversight board must not have actual or perceived conflicts of interest that could compromise their independent judgment. And I want you to think about that when I tell you what I found. 18 of the 20 members of Facebook's oversight board have ties to Soros's Open Society Foundations. Now, if you know anything about Open Society Foundations, nothing wrong with a philanthropic endeavor. And George Soros's Open Society Foundations have spent billions of dollars on global initiatives, aggressively advocating for the progressive side of many topics, immigration policy, climate, abortion, gender, racial policies, Obviously, nothing wrong with that. Conservative, liberal, these philanthropic foundations and causes. But when 18 of 20 members who are supposed to provide neutral assessments or not have any actual or perceived conflicts of interest that could compromise their independent judgment, and you look at so many of them having ties to this progressive activist foundation... I think that kind of takes away the notion that this is some sort of neutral or down-the-middle fact-checking or board that can do conduct some oversight about the questions people have about what Facebook is doing. The pervasive source connections that I'm going to talk about next after a break, how they're connected to the Facebook oversight board members, it may be nothing more than a matter of odds. I'm not suggesting that these people were chosen because they're connected to Soros. Soros is such a prolific financier among global groups all over, the groups that advocate for the positions he supports, that his name is bound to turn up when Facebook chooses fact-checkers who are primarily activists and advocates for progressive positions. That's just going to be the result. A group whose expressed viewpoints and causes are far from neutral, and they're pretty much going to be likely to come down on one side of an issue when there's a debate. By contrast, I couldn't find any members of the Facebook board who have demonstrated public positions on the conservative side of hot-button controversies. And I would think, again, this is Facebook's board, we wouldn't really be looking for a balance, ideally, of progressives or liberals and conservatives. You would be looking for people who could provide neutral and fair assessments of what kind of information should be accessible and should not be accessible. But in fairness, that's not what Facebook was looking for. I think they were looking to litigate um, what some people think is objectionable material, political material. But you can see where this is going to go when they're choosing from a pool like they decided to choose from. After a break, we will go over the Facebook oversight board members one by one and talk about the ties that I found to the George Soros groups and George Soros himself. We're back. Let's get back to the makeup of the Facebook Oversight Board. It was supposed to be an independent oversight board with authority to allow or remove content from Facebook and Instagram. And the four co-chairs named on the board have stressed the body's diversity, saying, here's one quote, 
The board members come from different professional, cultural, and religious backgrounds and have various political viewpoints. Some of us have been publicly critical of Facebook. Some of us haven't. Well, a lot of articles that were written about them also said the same thing, that, wow, the board is very ideologically and geographically diverse and crisscrossed the ideological spectrum. And really, when I started to look into it, it didn't look that way at all to me. I mean, yes, there are different geographical groups represented, but I would say about half of them are from academic institutions serving as professors and so on and not of a terribly diverse group of topics. As Facebook said, a lot of them are experienced or advocating for human rights issues, not very diverse on that front. But 18 of 20 members have either collaborated with Soros or his Open Society Foundations, or are tied to groups that have received funding from Open Society Foundations, which is as you probably know, one of the most well-funded and influential progressive organizations in the world. So, as I mentioned before, open society's global reach is so vast that simply receiving support from open society doesn't mean that all the people at an institution that got the money has a certain political leaning. Um, One member I did find of the Oversight Board for Facebook had received some support from Soros and the Charles Koch Foundation. But again, I look at that and I say, you know, the Koch Foundation, I guess they consider themselves libertarian, and they are for uh, illegal immigration, for more open borders, as is Soros and Open Society Foundation. So something, funding that may look diverse in some respects may not be as diverse as it appears on the face of it when these two groups actually share some common goals and have collaborated with or appeared appeared on panels or co-funded some of the same groups together. Nonetheless, the fact that 90% of the Facebook oversight board members have ties to George Soros and or his Open Society Foundation, I think raises legitimate questions in an environment where conservatives are complaining about big tech bias and internet censorship and being told sometimes by the big tech folks, that that's not happening. So here's a list of Facebook's oversight board members. I may mispronounce the names, and my apologies for any that I do, but Afia Asantiwa Asari Kiai. This is a person on Facebook's advisory board, oversight board, and this person is a program manager at Soros's Open Society Foundations in West Africa, directly working for the Soros Group. Next, Evelyn Aswald, who, by the way, is with University of Oklahoma, law professor. She received a grant from Knight Foundation, which has partnered with Soros' Open Society Foundations, and she has publicly advocated for a position that says corporations should align their speech codes with international human rights law and be guided by international law on freedom of expression rather than constitutional values. You know, we have different values here in the United States than much of the rest of the world. That's what a lot of people think makes the United States so special. We have First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, but this is a professor who's advocating with aligning these decisions with more international norms. Next, Indy Bayuni, who is a Jakarta Post editor, 
and Indy is on the board of the Institute for Policy Analysis Analysis of Conflict in Jakarta, which is um, an institute that is headed by a George Soros Visiting Practitioner Chair who previously worked at a Soros-founded group. Next, Catalina Botero Marino, co-chair of the Facebook Oversight Advisory Board, by the way, dean of a Colombian law school, and this law school received $1.3 million over two years from Soros' Open Society Foundations. She, Botero Marino, serves as an expert panel of Inter-American Dialogue, funded in part by Soros' Open Society Foundations, and serves as an expert for Columbia University's Global Freedom of Expression Project, funded, yes, in part by Open Society Foundations, and served as a board member of something called Article 19, which received $1.7 million from Open Society Foundations over two years. Next, Catherine Chen, an academic professor and a journalist. I could not find Soros ties for her. She's one of the only, I think, two that I didn't see any Soros ties with on the Facebook advisory board. She often retweets material critical of Donald Trump and supportive of Barack Obama. So again, even when you're talking about diversity, I didn't see anybody when I poked around and looked at their social media who said anything other than negative things if they said anything at all about Donald Trump. Um, Didn't see anybody who ever said positive things about Donald Trump. So there's not great diversity when it comes to views of the President of the United States, for example. Next, we have Nagat Dodd, who is founder and executive director of the Digital Rights Foundation, which receives money from Soros's Open Society Foundations and is a project of Artists at Risk Connection, a project of Pan America, which is sponsored in part by Soros's Open Society Foundations. And he served on the board of the Soros-funded Dangerous Speech Project and is an advisor on Amnesty International's Technology and Human Rights Council, funded in part by Soros's Open Society Foundations. Next, another co-chair, Jamal Green, another academic Columbia University Law School professor who recently served as an aide to California Senator Kamala Harris. His Twitter account shows that he has sided firmly against President Trump. No big surprise there, but I'm just pointing out Again, not great diversity on on that front. Next, Pamela Carlin, a Stanford University law professor, another academic. She's member of the Soros-founded and funded American Constitution Society, which takes a very progressive view by its own admission of the U.S. Constitution. And she supported Trump's impeachment and has contributed to Democratic candidates, including Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren. Next, to Wakal Karman, her organization, Women Journalists Without Chains, receives funds from Soros's Open Society Foundations. She serves on the Advisory Council of Transparency International, which also receives funds from Soros's group. Next, Mayina Kiai, Director of Human Rights Watches Alliances and Partnership Initiative, which received $100 million from George Soros's Open Society Foundations. Uh, She was a founding leader of the Kenya Human Rights Commission, which received $615,000 from Soros over two years. Sudhir Krishnaswamy, 
a law school vice chancellor, another academic, co-founder of the Progressive Nonprofit Center for Law and Policy Research, which receives major funding from Soros-funded Center for Reproductive Rights and the lesbian rights group Astria. He's editor of the International Journal of Communications Law and Policy, which received grants from Soros' Open Society Foundations, and he's also connected to the Soros-supported Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. Next, Ronaldo Lemos, a Brazilian law professor, another academic. He is co-founder of the Soros-supported Institute for Technology and Society, serves on the board of the Open Society-funded Mozilla Foundation, and was a board member at the Soros-funded Access Now. Michael McConnell, another co-chair, another academic, Stanford University law professor, head of the Constitutional Law Center funded by the Soros Open Society Foundation's funded American Constitution Society. Julie Owano, another academic, Stanford University, Harvard University, head of the International Sans Frontieres, now I'm sure I really butchered that, but I think it's International Without Borders, and she is a member of the Soros-funded Global Network Initiative. Amy Palmer, former head of the Israeli Ministry of Justice. I did not find a Soros tie with Amy Palmer. Alan Rusbridger, former editor-in-chief of The Guardian, who is on the board of the Open Society Foundation's funded Committee to Protect Journalists. Andas Seho, a professor, another academic, one of the founders of Soros's Central European University, and formerly on the board of Soros's Open Society Justice Initiative in New York, and he's a former judge of the European Court of Human Rights, criticized for its alleged conflicts of interest in Soros ties because an investigation found that nearly all of the judges on the European Court of Human Rights received funding from Soros's Open Society Foundations. Next, John Samples, founder of Libertarian Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, which was also founded by former Congressman Lee Hamilton, a Democrat, who was head of Woodrow Wilson Center, which is funded in part by Soros's Open Society Foundations. Now, Cato, again, where the member John Samples is a founder of an institute there. Cato opposes Trump's position on illegal immigration and sees eye-to-eye on issues with Soros, who has contributed to Cato through Open Society Foundations. Cato is also funded, by the way, by Google, Ford Foundation, and the libertarian Koch interests, who also favor more open borders. Next, Nicholas Suzor, another academic, a law professor at Queensland University of Technology, which collaborated with and co-funded projects with Soros' Open Society Foundations. And last but not least, Hella Thorning-Schmidt, another co-chair. She is Denmark's socialist former prime minister who advocates, as she says, rethinking democracy. She's on the board of the Open Society Foundations-funded European Council of Foreign Relations, she is a trustee at Soros's Open Society Foundation's funded International Crisis Group, where George and Alexander Soros sit on the board. She is an advisory board member of Open Society Foundation's funded Atlantic Council. 
and sits on the Atlantic Council's International Advisory Board, which received approximately $325,000 from the Open Society Foundation's funded Center for Global Development. So what does all of that tell us? Well, I think it means that when this Facebook oversight body, this body of experts, tries to litigate whether someone's opinion or statements or scientific views about things like climate change, immigration, race, gender, whether they try to litigate if those views are objectionable or acceptable, you pretty much know where the majority of this board is most likely to come down, at least based on their backgrounds and their ties to like-minded groups. They are activists and advocates taking firm positions on controversial topics in dispute, and they do not seem to be, from a neutral standpoint, good candidates to arbitrate whether it is fair and appropriate to censor certain people and views and issues. In the end, that may be what's wrong with the whole fact-checking effort. Wouldn't the public be better off if third parties stayed out of the censorship and fact-checking business unless the end user invites them into it? opts in somehow to the service with full disclosure as to who's going to be doing the moderating and what their interests are. Otherwise, it stands to be just another uninvited and sometimes unwanted tool that's trying to shape our information landscape in a way some of us do not want. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and check out justthenews.com don't forget to subscribe to this, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all of the Just the News podcasts, wherever you like to listen. And if you believe that independent reporting is sort of a dying thing, I hope you will consider supporting it by ordering my new book that will be coming out, addressing the very topic that is concerning a lot of us today. Again, it's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, Slanted is available for pre-order on Amazon or HarperCollins or anywhere right now. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself.